over the next several weeks, we are we're going to be addressing, uh, uh, man, some of the internal battles that each and every one of us face in different ways and in different seasons of our life as we start this new series called The Battle Within. But those of you who, uh, you know, haven't lived under a rock your whole life, you understand when I say this date, many of you will be able to tell me exactly what happened. December 7th, 1941. The day that will live in infamy. We all know history. We know that the Empire of Japan on December 7th, 1941, pulled off one of the greatest uh, surprise attacks in military history. Just before 8 a.m. on a Sunday morning, dozens of enemy planes unleashed a full assault upon the American military in the United States Pacific Fleet of Pearl Harbor, damaging or destroying 19 naval ships and killing 2,403 men and women, both military and civilian. The very next day, December 8th, President um, Franklin Roosevelt addressed Congress, and he, 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 uh, he's stating that prior to this attack, prior to December 7th, we understood in America that we were at peace with Japan, and that we were working toward extended peace. And after the bombs fell, America recognized that peace was only an illusion. It was the furthest thing from reality. And there was no peace, only the illusion of it. And in his speech on December 8th, the very next day, after these bombs fell upon Pearl Harbor, this is what Franklin Delano Roosevelt said. He said, I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7th, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. The president wanted to declare war. He wanted to go to war with Japan, but what he didn't know was that Japan had already considered itself at war with us because it had been planning, it had been strategizing, it had been preparing for this moment to catch us off guard and take us under attack and ruin us and cripple our Pacific fleet of the Navy, of the Navy. And uh, in this moment, the, the president asks the Congress to declare war and to declare the obvious. We were already at war. You know, today, you're sitting here and, and you may not have a foreign foe that you are facing against. You may not be fighting physical battles, but make no mistake, we are in a war. We were every one of us born into this spiritual fight, and we are all battling different types of enemies. You know, some of you may be fighting a certain type of enemy in your head, in your spiritual life, in in your relationships, in your work, in your family, whatever it might be, while others of us might be fighting completely different battles. They're all unique. In fact, Adrian Rogers, he once shared a story. Any Adrian Rogers fans in here this morning? I love his style of preaching. It reminds me so much of my father-in-law and how he used to preach. But he once shared a story of a man who was in his own battle. He was in a battle for his weight. And he wanted to lose weight. He was on a diet. And every day, he would drive past this donut shop on his way to work. And every day, he would fight that battle. But just one day and one day alone, he, as he was driving by this donut shop, Adrian Rogers shares it this way. He says, in his mind, he decided that, man, a donut and a cup of coffee just sounded so good. 
And he had, he had told himself, if I go into this parking lot and there is a parking spot available at the very front, then and only then will I stop and get a donut and a cup of coffee. Well, wouldn't you know, after seven times around the parking lot, he found a spot up in the very front. We're all facing battles, folks. We're all fighting different, various battles in our life. And there is an enemy that comes at each and every one of us in various ways to tempt us and to defeat us. And many of us, we respond in one of three different ways. We can respond, um, we can respond by refusing to believe that we live in a time of war. We can also uh, respond with waving the white flag of surrender. And then some of us even go so far as beyond waving the white flag of surrender, we might go so far as to actually build alliances with our enemy, to take up uh, you know, camp with them, to, to put ourselves in bed with them, so to speak. So we can ignore, we can surrender, and we can build alliances. But the fact of the matter remains, there is a war in our lives, for our lives, and for our souls. And it rages on every day. So 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is our text this morning. I want to read three verses to you. We're going to bounce around a little bit after that. But I want to start in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul is speaking to this church in Corinth who had many things to learn. And he said this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. For the Christian folks, this should be a call to arms for us. This should be a reminder from Paul, from God's word, that we are in a battle. And it is a cosmic battle that began at the very beginning of time. And we should take up arms. We should be prepared to fight. And even though it may seem at times in your life that We've made a truce. Like, there is no battle. There is no fighting. Like, man, my life is going really well. I pray, I hope and pray that you're in a season of life where you're experiencing victory. Like, God is going before you. He is fighting your battles. He is giving you victory. And you don't necessarily feel the attacks of Satan. You may go through seasons like that, and you may be lulled into a belief, a false belief, that there is a peace with our enemy, that there is a truce with our enemy. But I want to remind you that our enemy, Satan, does not make alliances with Christians. There is no peace. There are no alliances. He has one goal, and that is to seek, to kill, and to destroy. We are constantly at battle with our enemy. We are constantly in a war. So the question is not if we are in a war. The question is, do we recognize and realize the war that we're already in? And I think there's a lot of Christians who have been lulled into this idea of being peacetime Christians. And we just kind of go through life to get along, and we, we, we go along to get along, and we don't really want to fight. And we're going to talk about that in the coming moments, but the reality is, is that we need to know that we are called to fight in this spiritual war. And so if we are going to fight, there's a few things that we need to recognize. And in your, in your programs this morning, if you open them up, You'll find my notes, you'll find some blanks where you can kind of follow along and hopefully this will bless you and it will challenge you. But if we're going to fight in this spiritual battle, there's a few things that we need to recognize. And the first thing is this, that the spiritual is present all around us. 
The spiritual is present all around us. In fact, there's a Bible story back in the, uh, back in the Old Testament in the book of 2 Kings. And I want to invite you to turn there with me. 2 Kings chapter 6. I'm going to read about eight verses. It's a little bit lengthy, but I love this because it opens us to the reality of what is around us that we can't even see, that there is a spiritual presence all around us at all times. And this is a story of Elisha and his servant or his his protege, if you will, uh, coming into what looks like a pretty hairy predicament, okay? And I want to start in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8. It says this, Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying this, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God, Elisha, but the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God, or Elisha, had told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the man of the king, in the mind of the king of Syria, was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and he said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? Like this king of Syria is like, I've got a traitor in my ranks. Somebody is committing treason. Somebody keeps giving up my secrets from within. And one of his servants tells the king, he says, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha. The prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. And it was told to him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army. Like this king wants to kill Elisha because Elisha is getting insider information and is ruining all of the king of Syria's plans to thwart the king of Israel, okay? And so this king comes with great horses and chariots and an army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of, uh, of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant did what every one of us would do. He says, he says alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha says something really peculiar. He said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid for those who are with us are more powerful than those who are with them. Now imagine this servant who is seeing with physical eyes and he's seeing that, man, it's just me and it's just Elisha. And we're not even, we're not even soldiers. We're just like prophets. We're just like men of God. We're not equipped to take on an army with chariots and horses. But somehow Elisha has this peace. And so he said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha, he prayed and he said, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and he said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayers of Elisha. Oh, that we could have the eyes to see like Elisha does. We would recognize that there is a lot going on all around us. And in this text, Elisha sees the reality that is not physical, but it's spiritual. And he realized that they had outnumbered their enemy. It's just that his servant couldn't see it. Friends, there is a lot going on around us all of the time that we can't see, we can't touch, we can't feel, and we can't smell, and we can't even identify it, 
but it is going on. The spiritual world is just as real as this physical world that we walk in. And it is far more powerful than we understand. I mean, the Bible tells us that, that there are spiritual beings, both angels and demons, all around us that would actually overwhelm us if we were aware. If we could see what was going on all around us, it would completely overwhelm us. I mean, think about it. Every time somebody in the Bible encountered an angel, what did they do? They were always struck with fear and awe and many times fell on their faces because they did not know what to do in the presence of these heavenly creations, these magnificent creations of God. They were completely in fear of them. And I think every one of us in this place would acknowledge that we are entertaining angels all around us. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about this. But the, the question is, is, do we live as if that's an actual reality? Do we live as if angels and demons are real? Because as Westerners, we want to explain everything away. We want to have a, a definition for everything. We want to have an understanding and an explanation for everything. And if we can't see it, we're skeptical of it. You think about, we trust what's visible. We trust what's tangible. We trust the things that we can see and prove and explain and define. We trust the math. We trust the science. We trust all of these things. But the spiritual realm does not fall into any of those categories, does it? Like, it's a completely different realm. But because of our immense library of knowledge as humans, our science, our philosophy, our thought, our understanding, our history... The overwhelming majority of Westerners, at least, if not the entire world, has been numbed to the spirit world that's all around us. You know, I'll never forget the day that the spirit world became, it went from theory to reality in my own life. The very first time that my eyes were kind of open to what I still couldn't physically see, but I understood what was going on around me. See, I had been on a missions trip in South Africa. And uh, we, were, we were going deep into the bush on this missions trip. And uh, I mean, we were going into some different villages. And everywhere we went, we Americans were like celebrities. Like we were rock stars. Every little town, every little village that we went. Because for many of them, this was the first white person that they had ever seen. This is the first American that they had ever interacted with. And so they just wanted to get close to us. And so they were extremely hospitable. They were extremely friendly. Some of the best, most amazing people that you can imagine. And most of these villages that we would go into, they were so honored to have us that they would probably serve up the best meal that they would have all year long simply to host us. And we would go into some houses, they called them rendezvous, those round houses that have thatch roofs and everything. And in the, in, deep in the bush, their floors would be cow dung. So they would wet cow dung and put it down and it would harden. And as a way to honor the Americans, they would put a fresh coat down on their floor when we would show up. And we're like, hey, thanks a lot for that. That smells really good. But they would honor us. And it was really a cool experience. But we went into this one village in particular. And uh, man, we got out of the back of the truck. We were kind of going from little town to little town. They weren't very far away. So we were sitting in the back of this truck. We get out of the back of the truck. And just like every other village, the people come up, a small crowd comes up to us and, and greets us and welcomes us, and they're friendly. But there was this one gentleman that looked at us differently. And he looked at us as if he had eyes of hatred. And that was the first time I had seen that anywhere in South Africa. And for whatever reason, that caught my eye. Like, why does this guy look like he hates me? He doesn't even know me. But it's something that I, I, I latched onto and I couldn't let go of. 
And as everybody was coming up to us to greet us, he just walked by with eyes of contempt, hatred, deep hatred. What I found out a few moments later is that the missionary that took us there and one of his local pastors, they were very accustomed to the spirit world and they were very accustomed to demon possession. And so they were actually taking us into this village in order for the missionary and the local pastor to do a demon exorcism. And that's something I had never seen. I had never been a part of. And our missionary said, you guys, you Americans, you got to get out of here. This demon, if it comes out, it's going somewhere. Just get out of here. I don't want you around this. You are not prayed up. You are not equipped for this. But what I didn't know and soon to find out was the very person that they were about to do an exorcism on was the man that looked at us with hatred. And that was the first moment where I realized, I think that this man may have had a demon in him, and that demon recognized the Spirit of God in us, and he hated us. He wanted nothing to do with us. Folks, most of, much of the rest of the world understands this spirit world that is all around us much better than we do in the West, and they're receptive to its reality. But here in America, what have we done? We've caricaturized, we've caricaturized our enemy Satan and his demons. In fact, C.S. Lewis talked about this nearly a hundred years ago in his book, The Screwtape Letters. Many of you have probably read it. You understand that this book is kind of an allegory between two demons, one being a veteran who is training an up-and-coming demon. And this is what he says, the veteran demon in his training to this young demon who is learning how to tempt and how to destroy people's lives. He says this, I do not think that you'll have much difficulty keeping the patient in the dark. In fact, the devils are predominantly comic figures in their world. And the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, simply suggest a picture of something in red tights and a pitchfork and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, Therefore, he cannot believe in you. We have simplified our enemy. We have turned him into a comic book character. And when you ignore the enemy, it's easy to dismiss him as a fantasy. Folks, if we could just open our eyes to the unseen that's around us, and I know that God doesn't give us the eyes to see that for whatever reason, but if we could, if we could see with spiritual eyes what is all around us, just like Elisha, I think we would recognize that there is a spiritual presence and a spiritual reality always all around us. So we need to recognize that there is a spiritual presence around us. The second thing is, is that we should recognize spiritual war is a relentless campaign against us. Spiritual war is a relentless campaign against us. As we get back into 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I want to start breaking down this passage verse by verse. Verse 3 says, For though we walk... In the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Now, let's look over at Ephesians chapter 6. You don't have to turn there, but I can read verse 12 of chapter 6. It says this. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. He says, For we did not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are not fighting a physical battle. Um, we are fighting a very spiritual one, and it is relentless. Satan has launched an all out offensive against us. And that word warfare, as we go back to 2 Corinthians 10, and it talks about in verse, um, it talks about 
in verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. And it goes on, it talks about warfare. What that means is, is it's a campaign. There is a campaign against us. In this war, we're not fighting simple, isolated battles. We are not in little skirmishes with evil, with the evil one, the wicked one. The attack of the enemy is a full-on onslaught, is full-scale. He comes at us with everything he has. Spiritual warfare impacts every aspect of our lives. Man, it touches our health. It touches our minds. It touches our, our kids and our grandkids and our marriages and our finances in our churches. It touches our political leaders. It touches our, our workplaces. It touches our nation as a whole. And there is no part of our lives that aren't affected by the enemy's assault. The enemy wants to simply divide your marriage. He wants to steal your kids. He wants to stain your purity. He wants to compromise your integrity. And above all else, he wants to keep you from spreading the words of life, the words of Jesus to those who are on a path toward death. This is what our enemy does, and this is what he lives and exists for. And we cannot bury our heads in the sand and ignore this fight. The Bible doesn't say, ignore the devil and he will flee from you, right? It says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And uh, Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to read a little bit further into that in a few moments, but even Ephesians chapter 6 talks about how we should stand against the schemes of the devil. We should withstand him. Four different times that word stand or withstand is mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6, which tells us we should not ignore, we should stand and we should fight because this campaign is unending. You try to ignore a spiritual war in your life, and you will suffer a certain defeat. And our enemy is crafty, and he is cunning. And sometimes he lures us into sin, not through outright disobedience. Sometimes he lures us by deflection and deception. You know, think about back in Genesis chapter 3, the very first sin. I want to read Genesis 3, verse 1 to you this morning, because it shows us exactly what Satan does in order to get at us. And sometimes it's not outright, hey, do this and rebel against God. This is what he said to Eve in the garden. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So the serpent was crafty, he was cunning. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? So he doesn't come out, he doesn't come right out and just say, Eve, you need to rebel. He says, did God actually say? Like he's trying to divert. He's trying to distract. He's trying to dissuade. And all he wanted to do was to get Eve's eyes off of the truth, off of what God actually said and pervert it. And he distracts the woman and she falls into sin. He deflected her long enough for her to take her eyes off of God and the truth that God had spoken to her. And she questioned God. Satan has declared war on mankind in the garden, and it wasn't an isolated battle. He began a relentless campaign against us, and he, is, he, he knows he's already defeated. Our enemy knows that at the end, he will be defeated. But until then, he has made it his mission to defeat you, to distract you, to destroy you, because if he can take you down, then he has uh, in some ways, found a, a, you know, a temporary victory for himself. So we need to recognize that spiritual war is a relentless campaign against us. Thirdly, recognize that spiritual weapons 
help us fight in spiritual warfare. Spiritual weapons help us fight in spiritual warfare. Let's look on in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's look at verse 4. Paul says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. In this spiritual war, man, we are not just bystanders. We are not just spectators in this among the heavenlies and the cosmic powers of evil. We are active participants in this fight. And we have to engage. You will hear me say that over and over over the next several weeks. We must engage in spiritual battle. We can't put our our heads in the sand. We can't act like it's not happening because the offense against us is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Let me tell you about one of the saddest movie scenes I've ever watched. Some of you have probably seen this movie. It was in the movie called Saving Private Ryan. Toward the end of the movie, the C Company, that was a bunch of American soldiers, as we know, that they were on their way to find uh, James Ryan. They wanted to bring him back because his brothers had all been killed in World War II, and they wanted to save him so that his, mo- his mother didn't have to bury all of her boys. And so they make it their mission. They go into this French town called Ramel, and they are waiting there. They find Private Ryan. They are waiting there because they know the Germans are coming, and their one job at this point is to defend this bridge. And if the Germans start to gain ground against them, their last point of effort is to d- destroy the bridge, to blow it up. And so they're sitting around waiting for the Germans. The Germans eventually show up with their artillery. They show up with their tanks and their guns and hand-to-hand combat ensues. And one of the saddest things that I've ever seen is that in the story, in the movie, there is one character who is basically a clerk. He's a typist. And he just so happens to be able to speak English, French, and German. So he comes along as a translator. He doesn't see himself as a soldier. He doesn't see himself as someone equipped to actually go into battle. And so when the hand-to-hand combat ensues, he freezes. He doesn't know what to do. He ends up sitting in a stairwell when a German soldier goes up that stairwell and gets into a fight with one of his comrades. And the man kills the American soldier. He walks out of that room and goes back down that stairwell. And here is the American clerk who just froze in battle. And he falls down, he sulks down into the stairs in tears because he knew he froze in battle and his, his combat buddy had just been killed because of him and his failure to act. Folks, there are far too many Christians who approach spiritual battle the same way. We freeze in battle and we fail to fight. We ignore the fight. And the enemy gains a foothold, and these footholds over time become strongholds in our lives. These strongholds are kind of like a, like a picture of a modern fortress. You've seen those castles or those, those military fortresses that have like sometimes 20 feet thick walls, like 20 foot thick walls. They are meant to protect. They are meant to withstand any kind of attack. And the enemy, Satan, he builds up strongholds in our lives, and he gets a hold of a, of a hurt or a habit, or a hang-up, or a thought. He gets a hold of these things, and he builds these strongholds, and they become these things that we can't fight against because he has such a grip on our lives, and he defeats us through these strongholds. Folks, maybe you here this morning, maybe you're frustrated that you're not walking in spiritual victory, but maybe the reason you're not walking in spiritual victory is because you're secretly controlled by the strongholds of the enemy. You've given him that foothold, and you haven't fought back. 
Man, Satan wants us to keep these strongholds secret because he does his best dirty work of deception in the dark. And there are many Christians in the church today that have secret strongholds that they've never revealed, that they've never confessed. And I believe secret sin is one of the biggest hindrances to the work of God in the church. You think about revival and how revival happens. You know, we're all kind of familiar with a little bit of what happened at Asbury College just a couple of months ago in this massive revival. Where did it start? It started with repentance and it started with prayer. People that refused to go on in sin and they repented and they wanted God to move among them. Some of the most powerful spiritual victories begin with confession. You know, there's a reason that James said, um, he said to confess your sins to one another. Some of us, we've been hiding our sins for far too long. And we refuse to expose them to the light. And the enemy has taken this foothold and he's turned it into a stronghold because we won't shed light on our sins. You know, Paul urged the Galatians when he wrote to that church in, in chapter 5, not to gratify the flesh, but to walk in the spirit. He wanted them to fight against the urges of the flesh, the sexual immorality, the rivalries, the dissension, all of these things. He said, you've got to fight. You've got to fight your flesh and your natural tendencies, but you also need to walk in the spirit. And when we do, when we walk in the spirit, we have the spiritual weapons to help us in our spiritual fight. We don't have to fight in our own strength. Because I know some of us, we don't feel very strong. I don't feel very mighty. I don't feel very powerful. I certainly don't see myself as a spiritual warrior. And sometimes it's a little overwhelming, but the beauty is, is we don't have to fight in our own strength. Our weapons are not of flesh. But the Bible says we have the divine power. Think about that. Like when we read 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we have the divine power to tear down, to destroy strongholds in our life. And that word power in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it actually comes from the Greek word dynatos. Can you imagine what our English word comes off of dynatos? Dynamite. The power that we have is destructive. The power that we have is impactful. It's explosive. And we have this power with the Holy Spirit in us. And what are these destructive weapons that are in our arsenal? Well, we know that the weapons of our warfare that are not carnal, man, they are the armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6. I want to read verses um, 10 and 11 to you. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord, in the Lord, not in yourself, and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the schemes of the devil. And then he goes on, like I said earlier, he goes on to say, stand firm, stand therefore, take on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes prepared for the gospel of peace. Put on the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. But you need to stand and withstand the devil with these weapons that God has given us. These are destructive weapons, and we also can turn, in your blanks if you have them, we also can turn to the weapons of trust. Trust in the truth of who Christ is. There's a lot of people that are losing the battle. Their lives are lives of destruction because they refuse to acknowledge Jesus for who he is. We need to trust in the truth of Jesus and also the truth of God's word. We need truth in our lives. We need truth in our church. And there are many churches that are voluntarily walking away from the hard truths of God's word because they want to stay in step with culture. And I'm here to tell you that we need, every Sunday morning, 
I pray a prayer on my way in. God, use me today. Give me the words to preach. And what I say almost every time I preach is help me to rightly divide the word of truth. Not to skirt around it, not to avoid it, not to pervert it, but help me to rightly divide or teach the word of truth. And there are so many churches that are just relinquishing God's power and authority because they're walking away from the truth. Elizabeth Elliot once wrote this. She said, we must quit bending the word to suit our situation. It is we who must be bent toward that word. Fourthly, spiritual warfare begins on the battleground of the mind. And we're not going to go too deep into this this morning because we're going to dive into this in in the coming weeks. But verse 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 Paul said, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and every thought captive to obey Christ. This is what this whole series is kind of launched upon. We're we're, we're teaching through this series called The Battle Within because we're seeing a fallout in our society. We're seeing it in our churches because of the campaign against the mind that Satan has attacked us with. Satan's mission is for your mind. And you're never too old to be attacked, and you're never too old to fight back. We have a friend in this very auditorium this morning that turned 90 on Friday. And it's really exciting. Like, her mind is sharp, and she's excited about how old she is. She said her doctor said she'd live to 104, and she's like, I don't want to live that long, you know? But, But here's what I'm saying. Like, she's sharp, and even though she just turned 90 years old, she's not too old for the enemy to attack her. But she's also not too old to take up the armor of God and to keep trusting in Jesus and keep depending upon truth. Think about what you think about. I would encourage you to walk through this week and just do a thought audit of your mind. What are the things that you're giving your time and your thoughts to? Because where your mind goes is often where your life is going to go. I'm convinced that most of life's battles are won or lost in the mind. Proverbs chapter 23. Many of you have heard this verse before. Let me turn there real quick. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7. It says this. Um, it says, mm, yeah, I got the wrong verse written down. I got Proverbs 23, 7, but it's not the one, it's not the one that I wanted. But basically, Proverbs, the, the proverb that I'm looking for, sorry about that, folks. The proverb that I'm looking for is basically says this. As a man thinks, so is he. You, you've heard that before. And, um, you know, so, so I, I say that because I want you to understand that your life will move in the direction of your most powerful thought. Your life will move in the direction of the things that you give your mind to. So what are the directions that your thoughts are taking you? Think about the direction that our society is going. Where have our thoughts driven us? And look around. Man, we don't know what to think about anything anymore. Everything is upside down. Truth is under attack. We not only tolerate false lies, but we... Um, celebrate them, and we expect other people to celebrate them. We have a generation of people that have accumulated more money and more things than any generation prior to us, and people still hate their lives. Mental illness is an epidemic in our nation. We refuse to recognize that there is a spiritual darkness behind some, if not all of it. We just medicate everything. Even Christians are overwhelmed by anxiety, 
depression, fear, anger, disappointment, and shame. These are the things that we're going to be talking about over the next couple of weeks. Satan is powerful and has declared war on your mind. That's the battleground where it's being fought. And here's what I want us to remember, that even though Satan is powerful, God is even more powerful. His word is even more powerful, and he gives us this power, this dynamic power to be able to fight back against it. So we must declare war because there is already a battle within us. It's time for us to take our thoughts captive and to give our minds back to Jesus Christ. That's where the peace that passes all understanding is found. In fact, Isaiah chapter 26 verse 3 says this, You must keep, keep him in perfect peace. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you, whose mind is fixed on you because he trusts in you. You want to have peace in your life. You want to win the battle in your life. You need to keep your mind and your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about how to fight this battle, how to win this battle, this war for our minds. And in the meantime, we need to unite in wartime praying. Because I think there's a lot of us that haven't acknowledged that we're in war. And I think what will bring us together is if we will pray together saying, God, we recognize in this moment that we are in a battle and we need to unite under the banner of Jesus Christ, praying together for his power. We need to have wartime praying and we need to cast down the strongholds of wrong thinking that leads to wrong living. Folks, we're going to go through a spiritual battle. And I can tell you this, my wife will confirm this. She's back in the back. For the last month, I've been fighting an intense spiritual battle and I don't even always recognize it. Sometimes it's just discouragement. Sometimes it's defeat. Sometimes it's like emotions that I don't understand. It's conversations that are getting the best of me. It's just stuff that's constantly weighing on me. And I share that with you because I'm already recognizing the spiritual battle. And as we dig into God's word, trying to figure out how to win this battle for our minds, how to win the battle within, you can guarantee that Satan is going to, he's going to arm up. He is going to reinforce. He is going to come at us. And so we need to be prayed up. We need to be prepared. We need to declare war against our enemy.